Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very pleased to have with us award-winning author, Omer Bartov. Professor Bartov is Samuel Pizer, Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Professor Bartov has produced numerous works on World War II, Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust, including the Eastern Front, 1941 to 1945, Hitler's Army, Murder in Our Midst, Mirrors of Destruction, Germany's War and the Holocaust, The Jew in Cinema, Erased, Vanishing Traces of Jewish Galicia in Present-Day Ukraine, Anatomy of a Genocide, The Life and Death of a Town Called Zaks, which was the winner of the National Jewish Book Award. And today, we will be discussing Professor Bartow's Tales from the Borderlines, Making and Unmaking the Galician Past. Um, it is a, a wonderful uh, historical but yet personal account and urge all of our listeners and viewers, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click of a button with free delivery to almost everywhere in the world. So again, Professor Barto, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, just to get started, a, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Galicia, the borderlands. Uh, well, I was uh, born in Israel um, in the 1950s, uh, and I uh, received a regular Israeli uh, Zionist education, uh, secular, although my grandparents were religious Jews. Um, and, um, for many years, as you, as you mentioned, I researched, uh, the German army, uh, the Third Reich, uh, so I became a German historian. And, uh, in the last 20 years, I've started shifting my interest further to the east, uh, to areas where large Jewish populations had lived before the Holocaust. And partly this was a historical interest, uh, sparred by the kind of, um, scholarship on the Holocaust that I was not, um, entirely pleased with. And partly it had to do with becoming more interested in my own origins, uh, where my family came from, um, which led me to the town of Buchach on which I wrote several books, including this one. So it was a trajectory that took me from Israel to Germany and from Germany to Eastern Europe. Uh, this book appears, or I think you write in introductions a little bit different from some of your previous books in terms of that the genre is based on personal stories more than just plain dry, but history is never dry, but plain dry history. Why did you write this particular book in that genre? Yeah, that's a, that's a main question. And um, it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. So in many ways, the book that I wrote before that, Anatomy of a Genocide, was already a sort of melange, a mix of uh, the two, that is, of writing a history that is based, based both on uh, archival documents, on the kind of uh, 
the historian's most obvious sources uh, and on testimonies. And in Anatomy of a Genocide, I used a large number of testimonies uh, from the period of the Holocaust by Jews as well as by others, by Poles, by Ukrainians, by Germans. Um, after I finished that book, I became interested in uh, the world that existed before the Holocaust, the, the, the world that in which that town Buchach in Galicia, which was the province in which the town of Buchach uh, was, uh, what that world was like before that and over the long durée, the sort of long period of historical time. And I thought that in order to do that, I would like to develop more this idea of using voices uh, and personal voices. Uh, you know, the, the original title of Anatomy of a Genocide when I was writing it was Voices, or, uh, The Voice of Your Brother's Blood, um, called Me'achicha, which in, in, in Hebrew everyone knows, but in English is sort of less um, um, of an illusion. Most people don't quite connect it to the Bible. Um, and so already in anatomy, I was thinking about creating the life of this town through the voices of its people, but I also included many archival documents. When I began writing tales from the borderlands, I was especially interested in trying to reconstruct uh, the voice of that place. It's a place that uh, we don't really know much about any longer, that we have forgotten about. It was a very different world from the world in which we live today. And because it was a very complex world and it's impossible to encompass it, to encompass it all in one book, I thought that one way of doing it would be to listen to the voices of that world, to the multiple voices of it. And to do that, of course, you can't uh, find interviews with people who lived in the 16th or 17th century. So to do it also through the legends that were told, the myths that were told, the biographies of people who lived um, um, at that time, the fiction that was written, the, the literature, the poetry. And as you come closer to our time, to also listen to voices that were actually recorded. So in a sense, to think about a place as a personality or as multiple personalities and therefore to have more access to something that otherwise appears very alien and different and to understand that we have actually much more affinity with it than we would uh, really believe. Just to get our bearings a little bit, and, and I'm sure this shifts over time, but what geographical area comprises or comprised Galicia, and why do you refer to it as the borderlands? Yeah, that's uh, also a very complicated issue, of course. Uh, geography in general is complicated, and the geography of Eastern Europe is especially so. So first of all, Galicia, as a, a officially as a province, as an area, existed only between uh, 1772, which was the time, the first partition of Poland. And it was an area of Poland, of southeastern Poland. Uh, there was annexed by the Austrian Habsburg Empire in 1772. And when the Austrians annexed that area, they gave it the name Galicia, Galician. 
and they called it that because they wanted to somehow relate it to all kind of dynastic assertions that they had of, of rights over that area. The name itself goes way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, in, in Ukrainian, it's uh, Halichina, and that had to do with the uh, with the Rus, with part of the uh, medieval Rus Empire that ruled also over that place, and we're talking here about the tenth, eleventh centuries. Um, so, as a province, it exists only between 1772, when it was annexed by Austria, and 1918, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as it was called then, collapsed. Um, so that's the official. Uh, name of the place. However, people think about themselves as Galicianers, uh, obviously Jews who came from that area, but also others, including Ukrainians who live there today, think of themselves as being part of that place that was called Galicia. So the name uh, as a designation of a culture, of a geography, of a history remains, although it's no longer officially called that. Now, why is it a borderland? Um, as Poland expanded into these areas, and it expanded into these areas in the 14th, 15th centuries, uh, those areas became the eastern um, um, uh, borders of the expanding Polish and then Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And so if you think about it as a borderland, what it means is that it was an area in which there was a mix of populations, and it was an area where different entities, uh, different imperial entities and different um, uh, ethnic, religious um, groups um, met each other. Uh, and in that sense, the most obvious concrete um, uh, illustration of it being a borderland is that um, Poland built fortified cities in this area that were supposed to protect the rest of Poland from invasions from the east and from the south. The east were the Tatars and the Cossacks, and the south was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and these areas changed hands over hundreds of years between different groups, and therefore were seen of as the borderlands. In Polish, they are referred to as the Kresy. And I'd say one last thing about the borderlands. There is a kind of romantic aspect to the borderlands, romantic also in the sense of romantic literature, of literature from the era of romanticism. Uh, and that is that they were imagined both by um, in, in Polish literature, often in Jewish literature, in, in, in Ukrainian literature, as areas that were different from the center. They were, uh, they could be wild, they could be mixed, they could be uh, ambivalent in terms of who lives there, which population uh, interacts with another. Uh, and so in that sense, there were also areas, as I argue in the book, that were very creative because they were on the fringes of different entities and different people interacted with each other there who came from very different cultural, linguistic, and religious uh, origins. Um, so in that sense, the borderlands is also 
something in the mind as well as something in geography. When I grew up, and this might be a stereotype that I'm going to reveal, so a German Jew was a yekka with all that noted. Uh, maybe perhaps a Lithuanian Jew was a Litvak. When when someone says Galicianer, what 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 is the connotation? Is it correct, or or not? Uh, yes, I mean the the, the obviously um, was a stereotype of the Galiciana. It's a, that's mostly, I think, a a a Jewish um, a way of thinking about things. And a Galiciana, if uh, if you compare Galiciana to a Yeke, let alone or even to a Litvak, then the Galicianas are more popular. They um, um, they're often more connected to Hasidism because Hasidism came from that area of, of from from Galicia Podolia, from precisely that area. Uh, they're Amcha. They are the sort of the simple folk, uh, less educated, um, poorer. Uh, they're also often associated within the Jewish stereotypes with, with Schnorrers, with those who live off donations of others. Uh, so that's the kind of, uh, sometimes not exactly straight. They, they, they tell tall tales. Uh, so that's part of the, I would say, the Jewish stereotype. In some ways, you could say that from the point of, of view of the Yekes, uh, the Galiciana is the archetypical Ostiude. So the, uh, the, the Litvak less so, uh, because of the more, as my mother used to think about it, you know, Hoch Yiddish, sort of higher Yiddish is spoken by, uh, the, the Litvaks. And what people spoke in Galicia, as they used to say, in Galicia people speak many languages badly. Uh, and so that was the kind of stereotype. However, of course, you know, stereotypes always have a grain of truth in them. Uh, but we have to think of Galicia also, uh, as an area that for, uh, was the birthplace of Hasidism. Um, and in many ways it was the birthplace of Zionism. Uh, and so when, when you think about, um, some of the end, uh, was very deeply influenced by the Haskalah. Uh, and so when you think about Galicia within those terms of the main trends, both in Jewish history, but also in European history of the enlightenment of the rise of nationalism, uh, Galicia is hugely important within Jewish history. And in some ways, I would say, was marginalized because of these kind of stereotypes that were common within the Jewish world. I, I, my roots are Hungarian, so I'm, I'm objective in this matter. Um, can one is there a difference between um, Eastern Galicia and Western Galicia in terms of the general population and/or the Jewish population? Yes, there is. Let me let me just say about your Hungarian origins that, of course, it, <laughs> that, that of course, what is interesting is that uh, so many Jews who ended up in Budapest and who ended up in uh, Vienna came from Galicia. Uh, so there was it, just as we know that the Yekes 
most of the Yekas are Jews who came from Eastern Europe uh, before there was a concept of Osjuden. Um, there is a significant difference between West Galicia and East Galicia, and in a sense, when Jews speak of Galicia, oh, they, they really are thinking of East Galicia, not so much of West Galicia, because West Galicia is now part of Poland. Um, Poland, as it was created, recreated after World War II, uh, that's the area from, from, from Kraków going to the Polish-Ukrainian uh, border. Um, and the difference in populations there before World War II, because everything changed in World War II, of course, the demography changed entirely, was that the majority population in West Galicia was Polish. The second uh, largest population was Ukrainian uh, or Ruthenian, uh, as they were called at the time. And the third was Jewish. And there were large Jewish communities, of course, in, in, in Szezhuv, in, in, in Zamosh, and of course, in Krakow and so forth. East Galicia, which is now in West Ukraine, um, so separated entirely in that sense, uh, had a majority Ukrainian population, uh, then had a large Polish minority and a larger share of uh, Jewish population as well, uh, to the extent that in East Galicia, many of the small towns uh, had a plurality and at certain historical periods, especially in the late 19th century, a majority Jewish population. Um, so from that point of view, first of all, it's very, very different. Um, it also means that um, in uh, West Ukraine is really, uh, West Ukraine or East Galicia is really the birthplace of both Ukrainian nationalism and of Zionism and an area where Polish nationalism was very strong as well. Um, and so it differs substantially from the Western parts. Did Galician Jews, um, were they impacted? Did they witness any forms of emancipation in the 19th century? Was that part of the growth of Zionism in the Haskalah? Yes, absolutely. So um, um, Jews are, um, are emancipated um, first uh, in the Austrian Empire in the wake of the nineteen eighty of the nineteen forty eight um, um, Spring of Nations, the series of re of revolutions that occurred throughout Europe. And so, initially, Jews are emancipated all over Austria, the Austrian Empire, including in Galicia in 1848. But then that emancipation is reversed. Uh, and so they lose most of their rights. Uh, the one group that is emancipated at that point are the serfs, uh, the peasants, uh, which has all kind of ramifications for events in Galicia as well. The second time the Jews are emancipated is with the new so-called Austrian uh, constitution. Uh, and that's in the mid-1860s. So at that point, Jews are actually emancipated and receive uh, equal rights, at least uh, in paper. Uh, one implication of that is uh, that they have greater freedom of residence, movement, and occupation, uh, which also has various ramifications for their relations with other with other groups, um, it also means that um, 
um, Jews can receive, um, uh, have more access to education, especially higher education. Um, what's the situation immediately after World War One? What is the impact of World War One on Galicia and Galician Jews? Yeah, let me just um, uh, before I answer that, I just want to add one thing to what I was saying before, because you asked also about uh, the implication of emancipation or nationalism, and I think it's quite important. Um, so. Um, the, the emancipation of 1848, which, as I said, is mostly emancipation, most importantly, of serfs, means that there, there can then be the beginning of Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, there is a sort of proto-Ukrainian nationalist movement even before, and especially in Galicia, uh, but, but the people are still serfs. Uh, when the serfs are emancipated, they become the body of the nation. Uh, and uh, nationalism in that area is ethno-nationalism. So it's the nationalism of the ethnos, of the particular ethnic group, and it's territorial, right? So it's where you are, uh, where that group dominates. Um, The emancipation of the Jews later on in the 1860s, particularly in response then to growing nationalism among Ukrainians and Poles, is crucial then also to the rise of, of, of Jewish nationalism, which in Galicia eventually uh, really is Zionism. Not all Ukrainian nationalism is Zionism, but in Galicia, by the beginning of the 20th century, it's increasingly Zionist. So, so that's uh, important to recall. You cannot really have nationalism without emancipation. Um, and the historical irony is, of course, that emancipation is an 18th century enlightened idea, uh, and it resulted uh, in those parts of Europe also in a rather bloody-minded ethno-nationalism, uh, which was exclusionary to the extent that if this is my land and my people, then what is this other minority doing in our midst? Um, and so it um, has more and more violent attributes to it. Um, as to uh, World War One and its impact, uh, I would say that World War One, in in many other parts of Europe, of course, but in Eastern Europe, um, is not only hugely important, but in many ways has been neglected and forgotten, largely, of course, because of World War Two, the uh, the the rise of the Soviet Union, and then, of course, the Holocaust. But World War One is crucial, and it's crucial in the sense that it's the first time that uh, these kind of nationalisms that had started evolving and, and including more and more people, persuading more and more elements of the population that they belong to a nation and become increasingly antagonistic, then are exercised in violence. And because the war is very violent and destructive there, um, then these kind of nationalist animosities are exercised uh, against the populations in the region. For Jews, what adds to this, of course, is that Galicia is largely occupied by the Russian army in World War I, first in uh, 1914 to 1915, and then the Russians are uh, kicked out of most of Galicia, and then they come back, and they're again there in 1916-17, 
so first of all, it's very destructive, uh, the war there, uh, but also uh, the Russian army and particularly its Cossack units uh, perpetrated also numerous pogroms uh, and killings of Jewish populations in the towns of Galicia and deport large numbers of Jews into the interior of the Russian Empire. And as a result of all this, large numbers of Jews also flee to the West uh, from East Galicia. So the demographic impact of that is also uh, significant. And that has, of course, uh, impacts the kind of Jewish communities you find there uh, in the in the wake of World War One. And World War Two, the Holocaust, just the numbers. We're starting off with how many how many are left major cities that are no longer obviously occupied or have any Jewish communities. Yes. So. Um, and people often get confused because they uh, nowadays, of course, people associate East Galicia with West Ukraine. And so they speak about Ukraine. And there's a difference between what happened in what is now West Ukraine uh, and at the time was East Poland and then was annexed by the Soviet Union in 1939 and became part of the Soviet Union. And what happened in the rest of Ukraine in uh, East Galicia? Uh, there were over um, uh, half a million Jews, uh, and uh, well over 90% of them were murdered uh, in the Holocaust. Uh, and the survivors, the majority of the survivors from the towns and cities of Galicia uh, were people who fled uh, to the Soviet Union uh, mostly people who fled with the retreating uh, Red Army in uh, June, July 1941, when the Wehrmacht and the Germans attacked this area. Uh, so they themselves had pretty horrible experiences in the Soviet Union, uh, but the death rate among Jews who were either deported by the Soviets or fled uh, with the retreating Soviets, uh, the death rate was much lower. Uh, so by the end of World War II, or by the time this area is liberated by the Red Army in summer 1944, um, there are very few Jews left in that area. Um, there's some Jews who come into this now newly Sovietized area of now West Ukraine uh, in the wake of the war. There are referred to people there often as Soviet Jews. They're not the original Jewish population, but many of them also leave. So the result is that in the small, medium-sized uh, towns of um, of what used to be East Galicia, uh, there were hardly any Jewish populations at all. In some places, there were few Jews who remained, some left. Some moved to the larger cities, to uh, Lemberg, Vuv, now Review, uh, to Tarnopol, Ternopil, or to Stanislav, now known as Ivano-Frankivsk. Uh, but these are very small populations. So if you think of a town like Buchach, as an example, Buchach had a population of 8,000 Jews, uh, about 60 were left. If you think of a city like Lviv, Lviv um, 
about a third of the population of the city were Jews, about 150,000. And after the war, they were very, very small. There was a very small Jewish community. And to this day, there's a very small Jewish community there.